He was convicted twice of killing an 11-year-old girl, only to have his sentence commuted by a panel that included Governor Tim Walz and Attorney General Keith Ellison. After being set free, Mayan Burrell is facing new felony charges. Meet the man who worked to keep Burrell behind bars, why he says public officials and the local press are to blame for his false narrative of innocence. Next. Former Hennepin County Prosecutor Mike Fernstall is my guest. Mike, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Uh, thank you, Liz, and uh, thank you for doing this story. As you know, I've had a lot of trouble trying to get the local press to print the truth about this case, and you and one other uh, reporter have saw, saw fit to do that, so uh, thank you very much for that. No, I appreciate it, and, and I apologize that, that it has uh, take, taken this long. Uh, for our viewers, I do want to start with just a, a bit of background uh, in this high-profile case, but it was back in 2002 when a stray bullet entered a South Minneapolis home and killed Taisha Edwards, who's doing her homework at the dining room table at the time. So Mayan Burrell is 16, and he is first convicted by a jury, then again by a judge. Still, though, his sentence is commuted in 2020. He's set free. We're going to get to the new charges he's facing here in just a bit. But, but Mike, you successfully prosecuted Burrell again uh, in that case in 2008. He has maintained his innocence. In your opinion, though, is there any reason to believe that Mayan Burrell is innocent of Taisha Edwards' murder? That's just a joke. No innocent person has five different alibis. Mayan Burrell had five different alibis. He could have only have been in one place at the time. He said it was five different places. That's not, that's not the words of an innocent person. It's why I wanted to, to talk to you about this uh, w- with him in the news again, because I think people will wonder, well, how the heck uh, can this happen? How, how does it get uh, so far down the road? And I think it's important to understand the players in this case and the political ties here, because that, that certainly plays a role. But take us back just a few years. What's going through your mind? It's around uh, 2020 when this report is released that we'll go ahead and show by a then University of St. Thomas professor and this so-called independent panel of national experts saying that Mayan Burrell's continued incarceration just serves no purpose and in a way points to his innocence. What did you think about that? Well, it was very frustrating for me because there was nothing I could do at the time. I was a family court referee and therefore subject to the rules of uh, judicial professional responsibility, and I was prohibited from speaking out on a pending case, so I couldn't say anything. They contacted me uh, in, I think, no- uh, middle of November of 2020, asking me if I wanted to say anything to the panel, and I was told that I could not. But it was very late in the process, and it was very clear that they really didn't have any interest in hearing what I had to say because their letter said uh, I had to hurry up and decide because they wanted to get the report out in time for the pardon hearing. I didn't see that Osler report until several weeks later, and then I started working on my report. And uh, anybody who compares Osler's report to the facts of the case, I think, would be appalled by some of the comments they make and some of the allegations that they raise. It just stretches the imagination to say that this was penned by a group of neutral experts. It's just mind-boggling to me. So, You mentioned your report. This is a 152-page document denouncing every claim uh, made by that group, accusing it of making misstatements, telling outright lies in that report. But walk us through a a few of those, if you would. We'll be linking to both reports because I think it is important for people to kind of see them side by side and and see this for themselves. Uh, Start with uh, with motive uh, here. 
At the time, the Rolling Thirties Bloods, which was uh, which Burrell was a member of, was at war with the family mob. There were between thirty to forty shootings that took place and three to four murders. So it was a very bloody thing. Burrell had switched allegiances. He he was originally a member of the Vice Lords. Then, in the winter of two thousand one two thousand two, was initiated into the Bloods. And so they didn't trust him at first. He had to prove his worth. He had to prove that uh, he wasn't a snitch. So they made him become what Burrell called a rider. That was someone who took orders from older members in the gang and did the shootings on behalf of the gang. So uh, Tim Oliver, who was his intended target, was a member of the Gangster Disciples, and they were aligned with the family family mob. Tim Oliver was one who was a writer for the family mob and did a lot of shooting of members of the Rolling Thirties Bloods. So um, the Bloods obviously wanted to end Oliver's life. Uh, Burrell was a writer and was uh, chosen for that position to do that, so he had the motive to take out Tim Oliver. You, you mentioned uh, multiple alibis, five in total for Mayan Burrell at, at the time, but uh, quite Quite some telling things when it comes to his actual confessions uh, here as well, Mike. Yes. Uh, one thing that the Oslo report failed to mention was the testimony of a man who was in the same uh, area in the Hennepin County Jail as Mayan Burrell. I don't want to mention his name on air in case it could jeopardize him. But this man um, gave incredible detail, details that only Mayan Burrell would have known about. For example, he said that at the time that Burrell got arrested, which was four days after after Taisha was murdered, that he was going to tell the officer, uh, give the officer a false name. But then he saw that there was a picture of him with his name on the on the officer's dash. I called that officer in to testify, and he confirmed that he had a picture of mine Burrell on his dashboard with his name, and so. This gentleman who testified could only have known this from the words of Mayan Burrell. And that confession was corroborated in other ways as well. When Burrell first got to this quad, he was very upset. He was crying and screaming. This man kind of befriended him, told him to give it up to God, and, and settled him down. And so, like I said, befriended him. But the conversations that they had were overheard by another inmate in that quad, a man by the name of Davis. He was a friend of the Burrell family. He was not a friend of the prosecution. But we uh, had a recorded statement from him that confirmed that he overheard Burrell confessing to this man in the quad. So we corroborated it that way. In addition, after we moved this man out of that quad, Burrell immediately called his mother and told his mother that the only man, the only person that he could talk to was moved from his quad that morning. So we had a lot of evidence corroborating the statement, and the statement was incredibly powerful. It was probably the most striking piece of evidence that we had, but it went totally unmentioned in the report by this group of neutral experts. And so you have to wonder, anybody who's reading that report and relying on that report for the facts of the Burrell case, such as presumably the governor and attorney general during the pardon hearing, you have to wonder why that wasn't put in there. Were they not intending to have a, a complete uh, recitation of the facts, or did they want to give the impression that uh, the, the case against Burrell wasn't as strong as it actually was? And also that Osler report is critical of the work done by the Minneapolis uh, Police Department at that time, these allegations of tunnel vision. 
Yes, uh, one of the things they claimed was that uh, we didn't uh, uh, go into his alibi sufficiently enough. And I hope we're going to talk about alibi next because I really have a lot of things to say about that. But one of the things, I mean, Burrell had five different alibis. He finally settled uh, before the second trial and during the second trial on the Cup Foods alibi and apparently is claiming that, has claimed that since then. Um, uh, Osler's panel said that the police engaged in tunnel vision because they didn't obtain the tape from Cub Foods that would have shown allegedly that Mayan Burrell was at Cub Foods at the time of Taisha's murder. Now, several facts about this. Number one, Cub Foods, at least I was told at the time, erased their tape every day. So we didn't know that Cub Foods was going to be his claimed alibi until two for certain until 2008 when he proffered the testimony of Julian Sully who you know coincidentally works for Keith Ellison so by the time um, uh, and, and now Burrell first mentions it in uh, in his interview with the police on the day that he was arrested but he also said two other alibis so there was no reason for us to go to Cub Foods to check that, we would have needed to have had that information within the day of Taisha's murder, and obviously we didn't because we didn't know who the murderers were, who the participants were until a couple days later. And truthfully, you know, Burrell had the ability to tell his attorney where he was and who he was with. In fact, prior to the first trial, he told his attorney that he was with James Graham. James Graham came in and testified that he was at his house several blocks from Cup Foods during the entire afternoon that uh, Taisha was murdered. If he in truly was, in fact, at Cub Foods, why didn't he tell his attorney, go to Cub Foods, get the tape of Cub Foods? Uh, that would show that I was nowhere near uh, where Taisha was when the murder took place. So that's what you're mentioning, this, this multiple alibis and this changing story. Burrell had five different alibis. Common sense should tell you, even the Osler experts should tell you, that Burrell could only have been in one place at one time, and only he would know that. Now, this is what the Osler report said about Burrell's alibi. They said, Burrell did not appreciate the importance of providing a complete and accurate alibi until he realized, well into his interrogation, uh, that, he was, that police suspected him of Taisha Edwards' murder. As soon as he understood the importance of giving a truthful alibi, Burrell's account has long been that he was at Cub Foods during the time of the shooting. Well, first of all, it wasn't well into the interrogation. It was a three-and-a-half-hour interrogation. It was not well into the interrogation that he was told that he was a suspect. It was one minute and eight seconds. He was told that, he, uh, that the police were there to speak to him about the little girl, and he, he indicated that he understood what they were talking about. He didn't express any surprise. He didn't ask for clarification. The police told him that Ike Tyson and Williams were putting him in the middle of this thing. So it was very early on in the interrogation. It wasn't well into the interrogation. And the Osler experts had this information. So why did they make this claim that it was well into the interrogation? And secondly... They said that he's always maintained that he's been at Cub Foods. That is just a blatant lie. Burrell has had five different alibis. First, he said he was babysitting his son in Bemidji, Minnesota, and he claimed that he didn't come to Minneapolis until the day after Taisha was murdered. Then, during the interrogation, he said he was, his, he was with his uh, cousin, Romero Spellman. 
The officer uh, interrogating him knew Romero Spellman and had already called Romero Spellman, told him that he had called him, and so Burrell dropped that second alibi. Then he mentioned that he was at Cub Foods, but couldn't remember anybody that he was with, anybody that could verify uh, uh, that he was there at the time. And then in jail calls, he said he was at the home of Sharon Edwards, uh, which was, her house was a known blood house. Her children are members of the Bloods. And in other jail phone calls, he said he was at the home of James Graham, also known as Monk. This is what I've referred to as the Monk alibi. Then before his first trial, he tells his in, uh, attorney and investigator to get in touch with James Graham. And they subpoena him, and Graham comes in and testifies, as I said earlier, that he was at James Graham's house during the entire afternoon that Taisha Edward was murdered. And this is several blocks from Cup Foods. Then uh, the case gets overturned on appeal. Uh, a second retrial is scheduled, but before that can occur, um, the state files an interlocutory appeal based upon a pretrial ruling made by the judge. But in a filing that was done before that, the attorney for Burrell made clear that he was going to continue with the Monk alibi as his alibi for the retrial. Then after that case was heard on appeal, I got assigned to it, and we get set for trial, and right before the trial, his attorney tells me that he's now going to rely on Julian Sully as his alibi. Julian Sully, who now works for Keith Ellison. And uh, she testified that at the time of the murder, uh, she was standing with Burrell outside of Cub Foods. And she said a lot of other things. Everything she said that came out of her mouth, I impeached, with the exception of her name. So, I mean, throughout this thing, if he had the ability to tell his attorney that he was at James Graham's house, why didn't he have the ability to tell his attorney that he was with Jillian Sully? Another thing I want to point out is that uh, one of the affidavits that was given to the um, Osler experts was an affidavit by the name of a woman, I want to get it correct here, Latasha Evans. She says that in her affidavit that she was present with Burrell outside of Cup Foods. All right. Now, remember I told you uh, before the second retrial um, and before it got delayed, Burrell's attorney filed um, a witness list indicating that they were going to pursue the Monk alibi, the James Graham alibi. Well, a month before he filed that, Latasha Evans visited him in the Hennepin County Jail. So if he was truly with Latasha Evans, why didn't he give this information to his attorney at that time? Why didn't they file a different uh, witness list saying that he was at Cub Foods? I think there's only one conclusion as to the answer for that. So. Well, we mentioned that Osler report, and I wanted to point out that Mark Osler is now the head of the criminal division in Hennepin County Attorney Mary Moriarty's office. I think it's important to point out Moriarty has been quite sympathetic, of course, to Burrell's cause. In fact, she paid him thousands of dollars to help her campaign this last election. I'm curious from your standpoint, someone who spent 30 years working for Hennepin County before before you retired, what do you make of the political connections in all of this? And again, this theme, it seems, especially at Alpha News, that we report again and again of the, the top prosecutors siding with the, the, the criminals, not, not the victim. Well, it's very incestuous, this relationship between Mary Moriarty, 
Mark Osler and Keith Ellison. Moriarty and Ellison are cut from the same cloth. When she was being fired from her dream job as the chief Hennepin County public defender, Ellison defended her. As you mentioned, she supports Burrell's request to vacate his conviction, and she doesn't know anything about the case. She had no access to the transcripts, no access to the police reports, so she had no information to base this conclusion on other than the word of Mayan Burrell. Now, this is the chief prosecutor in Hennepin County, the chief law enforcement in Hennepin County that sides with a twice-convicted child murderer based upon his word alone without checking the facts on it. As you mentioned, she paid him $15,000 to help him help her in her campaign to get elected. She put a, a picture of the two of them on Facebook and her welcoming, welcome, welcoming him home. Now, uh, Ellison, during the pardon hearing, he suggests strongly to Burrell that he file a petition with the Conviction Review Unit. It's my understanding that that's the first petition that was filed to that unit. Uh, Ellison decides that the Osler group are going to decide um, Burrell's petition and th until he sees my, uh, my report. And then according to the lady who runs that, she says she's not going, she told me she wasn't going to stake her reputation on that case. So all of a sudden that came to a screeching halt. And they decided that the Osler group are no longer going to be on the case, but they haven't done anything since that time. And now, now Osler works for Mary Moriarty as the head of the criminal division in the adult prosecution division. It's very incestuous, very curious. It's in late August then, Mike, that Burrell is pulled over by Robbinsdale police for erratic driving. According to court documents, he resists arrests at the scene. A search of his vehicle finds a loaded handgun, marijuana, capsules, and pills containing controlled substances. He's charged then with being a felon in possession of a firearm and fifth-degree possession of a controlled substance. What's your reaction to these latest charges? Uh, someone like you, Mike, who, who tried to actually keep him uh, behind bars. Well, it's not surprising. You know, Taisha's father described Burrell, uh, I think, perfectly when he called him just a, a, a young thug. So it's no surprising to me that uh, uh, that he was caught. I, I mean, he's a criminal, you know. I mean, he's not going to get a white-collar job or a blue-collar job. He's going to commit crime. So it, um, if there's anything to be surprised about is that it took this long for him to get caught. But I think it speaks volumes about the judgment of these people that commuted his sentence and were and contributed to doing that and supported that. You know, they all said that he has uh, rehabilitated himself, and I don't know how you can rehabilitate yourself when you t don't take responsibility for your actions. But now they're faced with the, the, the fact that uh, he hasn't done that. He's just gone back to the, what he was doing before. And, you know, let's be remembered that, you know, after he shot Taisha, he didn't stop trying to kill people. Uh, two days, three days later, he was trying to murder another member of the family mob, but he missed and uh, struck a, a Somali man in the leg instead. So he, he just very well entrenched in this criminal lifestyle. Another twist, the Minnesota Freedom Fund pays the $100,000 bail for Burrell's release. Just overall, what's your take on the last few years in, in Hennepin County? Has it been difficult for someone like you to, to watch, someone who served the county for, for so long? Yeah, I don't know too much about that because they weren't uh, in action uh, when I was there. But, you know, it's a very curious thing. I mean, I saw that Burrell had bail of $100,000 without con without conditions or $50,000 with conditions. They paid, they put up $100,000 so that he could be out without conditions. 
that means that he can't be tested to see if he's using illegal drugs. That means the bail was more more expensive, and they could have saved that money to use it on other people. So uh, I, I don't know what motivates this, uh, the, these folks to do this, but um, it's certainly disconcerting to me. So you, you pointed out to Moriarty uh, has supported Burrell's request to, uh, to vacate his conviction, Mike. So if that happens, he could receive millions in taxpayer dollars. I'm guessing these new felony charges could throw a wrench in, in that plan, though, as well. Well, I'm told, uh, I, I read a report, uh, I think it was in the Star Tribune, I can't remember what uh, what news media said this, but uh, they, they talked to either Ellison or a spokesman for Ellison who claimed that uh, these new charges won't have any effect on whether or not his conviction for murdering Taisha would be vacated. But I have to think that in the back of the minds of the decision makers, it's going to play some part. Yeah, wild. I know you've been pushing, as you said, to get this story out there for some time, but but it's interesting how the media, in in a way, um, started all of this, and and it's par- pretty impossible to not to see the coverage that they're sort of cheerleading uh, as he comes out of, of prison. Um, I I was able to to witness that for myself. Uh, it didn't seem like they cared about uh, the truth. It was really disheartening to see that. I saw that recently Burrell met with a committee from the United Nations to talk about wrongful convictions. I mean, they have been parading this false narrative that this is an innocent young African-American male that was convicted of something that he didn't do when there is a wealth of information that says otherwise. I mean, there is just absolutely no possibility that Mayan Burrell is innocent of the murder of Taisha Edwards. And, you know, I understand that people shouldn't take my word for this. You know, I was the prosecutor. I have some bias. I understand that. What I suggest people do is they read my report, read Osler's report, and then read my rebuttal to every point that he makes. I don't just make statements. I cite in the record the basis for my claims, either in the court record or in police reports. Everything that I say, I have a basis for saying that, and I cite to that. And lastly, why should people pay attention to this case and, and why should people care? As I think there are so many questions now about our so-called justice system uh, in, in this country. Well, I think this case dealt a big blow to the justice system. You know, um, I think they took advantage of what happened with uh, in Cup Foods with the police officer involved. And, uh, and um, people have some mistrust. And I think this contributed to that. And I think that it's important that we get that trust back. I mean, this was this was a young lady, an 11-year-old child that was murdered in front of her 8-year-old sister. You know, imagine how that affects a person for the rest of their lives. And then when you hear that people are saying that Mayan Burrell is innocent and you have to face the possibility that you might run into him someplace on the street. I mean, for Taisha's family to have suffered what they did and then all this other stuff coming afterwards, I, I think it's just outrageous. And I think we have to be able to protect our children, for crying out loud. If we can't do that, what kind of society are we? And we have to, you know, expect that the media, if they are reporting on these issues, they're going to do it fairly and accurately without bias. That really hasn't happened in this case. And I think you know, Liz, from our conversations and from the tenor of my report, that I've been very frustrated and very angry about this. As I said, only you and one other reporter in the Twin Cities have shown any interest in, in uh, exposing the truth about this case. Former Assistant Hennepin County Attorney Mike Fernstall, thank you so much for, for joining me and speaking out on this. 
Thank you again, Liz, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. Thanks for doing this story. Absolutely. That will do it for this episode of Liz Collin Reports. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.